you know, I'm a, put it in American terms, if I'm a Republican and you're a Democrat, those categories cannot be allowed to be deeper than or more important than our status as brothers in Christ. Mm -hmm. If they become more important than our status as brothers in Christ, something is wrong with our spiritual priorities. We're making something secondary into something primary, mm -hmm. and what's primary, we're turning into secondary. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Vast Podcast. We have taken just a couple of weeks off, but we are back. I'm here with my beloved co-host, David Campbell. David, how are you? Uh, I'm pretty good, thank you. It's so good to see you and talk to you again. Obviously, we text all the time, but I haven't uh, chatted to you uh, on the we've phone been, in, in a minute. Traveling. Yeah, we've been busy traveling, uh, all kinds of stuff going on. But alas, we're back together. And it feels so good. Did you miss me? Of course I missed you. <laughs> um, so we're going to uh, try out a bit of an updated format for our podcast um, and aim for some longer form discussion. Um, and so... Uh, one of the things that we're going to talk about, which we'll get to later on uh, in our convo, is uh, talking about a book that you and I are both reading, uh, which is something that we're hoping to bring into our discussions moving forward. Uh, the book that you and I are reading right now is called On the Incarnation of God, uh, I think is the title anyway, um, which I'm really enjoying. Wonderful book uh, recommended to us by a mutual friend. And uh, so we'll get to that in a moment. Um, but man, so today is November 8th when we're recording this, uh, which is election day. It's the midterm elections here in America. Um, and well, you see a whole bunch of the posts on Instagram uh, or Twitter, you know, Facebook. I only do Instagram because that's, that's, that's more than enough to be bombarded with people's thoughts on a daily basis. Uh, but certainly on my mind right now is uh, Christianity and politics and what it looks like for Christians to engage in the political sphere. Um, and there are all kinds of varying opinions and degrees to which people believe Christians should engage in the political sphere. I'm of the belief that we should do everything through the filter of our faith. And so Christianity should be... Uh, what informs us when it comes to how we approach the political sphere of life. Um, one of the hot, one of the hot buzzwords right now is the term Christian nationalist. And it's kind of one of those words that I think people use and w they're assuming a commonly agreed upon definition for that term. But it seems to me like, people define it differently because sometimes it's spoken of really disparagingly and other times it's spoken of uh, in the sense of it just is kind of obvious that um, that would be a, a safe description for Christians engaging in the political sphere within their context in their nation. Um, one of the, the challenges that I heard thrown out recently to uh, somebody who would self-identify using that term um, 
is that Christians are called to come out of Babylon. That's what John uses. That's the language that he uses in the book of Revelation, which is a uh, reference, is it to Isaiah, uh, that Isaiah calls? Um, no, it's not. It's Zechariah, I believe, uh, who is calling the Jews to come out of Babylon. Jeremiah, and and it's Paul uh, that quotes the text exhorting them to come out of Babylon. But it's a theme in Isaiah and Jeremiah. Uh, and yeah, John I think Zechariah even says it specifically, and then John references it in Revelation, right? Uh, Paul references it in, uh, help me, Second Corinthians. Uh, uh, Does he? Yes. <laughs> I didn't I mean, even know that. I can't remember whether it's First Corinthians or Second Corinthians. Um, I think it's in chapter 7. Uh, and... Uh, and I'm thinking it's in First uh, Corinthians. It's definitely um, in Revelation 18. Well, uh, no, in, Re- in Revelation. Well, yes, Revelation 17 and 18. John talks about Babylon, the great prostitute, as the world system. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So 18:4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, "Come out of her, my people, lest you okay, take part right, in her sins, yes, lest right. you share in her plagues." So, and Paul Paul uses the same, but basically quotes the same Old Testament text when he's writing to the Corinthians. So uh, that's that. I mean, I think, well, let me first start off by giving, this is the, we're recording this before the polls have closed, so I can give a prophecy. So I'm going to- <laughs> Just for reference, it is 2 Corinthians six seventeen where Paul quotes, there come out quote. from them and be yeah. separate. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to give a prophecy, which I hope is more accurate than my, uh, biblical reference, which put it in First Corinthians, not Second. Uh, and my prophecy is there will be just as much contention after the results as before. <laughs> the results. So that's the end of my prophesying. I think that's um, a, a very on, uh, safe uh, tack to take when it comes to these yeah, things. I think so, on the subject of Christian nationalism, uh, I've been a bit uh, con- confused by it because I'm really not sure what people mean by it. I don't know whether they know what they mean by it, but I'm assuming that it is what we used to call reconstructionism, Christian reconstructionism or dominionism, um, which is a uh, aspect or feature of post-millennialism, which just goes to prove my point that your um eschatology affects everything you believe, including mm. your politics. Uh, so post-millennialism is that, which I don't agree with, is an interpretation of biblical eschatology that says that things are going to get better and better and better to the point where, um, you know, Christians, the church, Christians slash the church will take over the world. And when Jesus returns, it may be that every single person is converted. Some have taken that that view. So then uh, allied with this is the movement uh, toward called theonomy, toward instituting Old Testament law uh, as uh, civil law. Mm-hmm. And um, so so that is one sort of movement. Um, now, uh, what I what doesn't make sense is why, in the same breath, somebody advocating that would talk a, about coming out of Babylon, because actually, Reconstructionism, Dominionism, 
uh, whatever you want to call it, talks about taking over Babylon, not coming out of it, but renovating it in the process. Ah, sorry, and, let me clarify. And, the person who was quoting that was saying that Christians should have not to do uh, with um, the political sphere, uh, at least not oh, in I any see, kind right. of serious way. But on the point that you're making now, that is exactly something that I have thought about in the sense that uh, in the sense that Christians believe that a nation should be thoroughly Christianized, uh, that would have to, to me, that would have to come along with an accompanying belief in a post-millennial eschatology, I think. Correct. Yes, it goes hand in hand. Uh, and if you don't hold a post-millennial eschatology, uh, then you can't really take that view. Um, because unless your view was simply, uh, simply that the responsibility of the Christian towards the nation is to seek its good. And that is a different view. That's Pauline theology, uh, mm -hmm. which he states in the 13th chapter of Romans, mm -hmm. essentially that Christians should be good citizens. Uh, and, um, that's echoed one or two other places, for instance, in first Peter, so I think there's uh, – but I think that's where the nuance comes in and uh, the – where the, the, the division is where people get a kind of a takeover mentality uh, as opposed to a salt and light mentality. So a salt and light mentality is let's be good citizens. Let's try to influence. Uh, let's try to support godly men and women who are in the political realm to be salt and light. Uh, and uh, that's entirely acceptable. Mm -hmm. But then you go over the edge and get into this let's take over mentality. Uh, and that's something that I don't think the New Testament even visu visualizes or envisions happening. It's, it's completely alien to the letters of Paul, to his attitude toward authority uh, or, or secular government, um, it's alien to Revelation, uh, which envisions, uh, you know, civil government as being there, as being a, a battle place between good and evil, uh, but basically instituted by God for the restraint of evil, but perverted by the enemy. But nowhere is there a suggestion in the New Testament that I can see anyway, that Christians should try taking over government. So where Christians are exhorted to be good citizens, mm -hmm. being part of being good citizens is uh, to be involved, some to be involved in the political realm. Mm -hmm. But uh, where you try to institute God's law, which holds in the church, and try to bring a fallen human structures and governments under divine law is where it's bound to fail. And uh, that's the so, someone said it was uh, some of these people were like the Christian equivalent of, you know, uh, ISIS or the, you know, the Islamic uh, extremists, which is possibly a little unfair. But uh, but you get the point, you know, that Iran is a theocratic state. It's a state that's ruled by the religious elite, according to 
their interpretation it has to be said their interpretation of is- Islamic Islamic law. Uh, whereas, uh, and of course, Saudi Arabia, same thing, except different interpretation of Islamic law. So the question is, is that really what we want to try to create in a Western country? And I don't think it is. And I don't think that really the, the, the spread of the gospel is the changing of people's hearts, the salvation of their souls. It isn't constructing political systems. Yes, except to say that being a good citizen is, and and even better than that, being a good Christian, I think entails seeking a uh, social structure that benefits human flourishing and that makes way for the spread of the gospel. Now, I know that the gospel can and will spread regardless of whether or not a culture is friendly to it. Uh, but certainly we should seek to uh, promote a society that is more in line with Christian belief and not less. Yeah, but notice that Paul says, pray for those in authority in order that the gospel may go forward. Mm-hmm. He doesn't say take over authority. It's just interesting. Um, is that is that contextual though? Because uh, and I'm just playing devil's advocate. Is that contextual? Because for Paul, that like to have any level of authority wasn't even an option. I mean, they didn't live in a democratic society. Uh, well, um, no, I think Paul was a Roman citizen, uh, and. You know, Roman citizens did have uh, did have a say. I mean, Rome wasn't an absolute dictatorship. There was a Senate. Uh, there were various bodies of citizens. The citizens, you know, had uh, influence. Um, so uh, I don't think it would be quite true to say that he said it, particularly speaking as a Roman citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the differentiation is our, in our attitude, is our attitude to be salt and light, to influence for the good, or, um, are we trying to take over? Now, uh, if you're part of a political party in a democracy, you want to take over. In other words, you want to win the election. Right. And that's fair enough. Mm-hmm. But in winning the election as a Christian, you're never going to identify the values and goals of your political party as the, you're never going to equate them with the kingdom of God. Right. What you're going to say is this is the best we've got on right. offer. Yep. Um, it's, it's flawed. It's imperfect, but it's the best alternative that we've got mm-hmm. uh, to be part of as a Christian. So for instance, as a Christian uh, in politics, you'd want to be involved in a political party that had a, had a stronger pro-life influence rather than a, uh, a pro-abortion influence. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you wouldn't equate the political party with mm-hmm. the kingdom of God. And I think that's just, we have to make that differentiation. The kingdom of God is the divine rule and reign of almighty God on earth, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which primarily takes place through the church, through right. his people. Not through a political party. Not through a political party. It's a supernatural breaking into history. Uh, political 
the political governmental realm that Paul talks about, for instance, in Romans 13, is part of the order. The Greek word is taxis, part of the order that God has established in the universe, the same as he's established an order in the family, uh, you know, in marriage um, and and even in business uh, economic relationships, according to the New Testament. God has established an order. Now, those orders are not perfect, but they're meant to bring stability. Mm-hmm. So the order within a marriage relationship or the relationship between employers, employees that the New Testament talks about, mm-hmm. um, uh, those are not perfect and not in, vis- visualized to be, uh, you know, sort of spirit filled relationships. Mm-hmm. It, it, they should be in church, but outside of church, they're not going to be. But there is a value in having order because the opposite of order is chaos. And that's mm-hmm. where Satan operates. Mm-hmm. So even imperfect order is better than no order because no order inevitably leads to might versus right. The people mm-hmm. with the most power will seize all power. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the midst of it, a Christian in politics can say, well, I, I'm going to vote for that party because I think it has better values. Uh, I, I think as a Christian, that party has better values. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not going to identify that party with the kingdom of God. And I think that we approach these things with a certain degree of humility, because because if 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 you know I'm a re- put it in American terms, if I'm a Republican and you're a Democrat, mm-hmm. um, the th- those those categories cannot be allowed to be deeper than or more important than our status as brothers in Christ. Mm-hmm. If they become more important than our status as brothers in Christ, something is wrong with our spiritual priorities. We're making something secondary into something primary, Mm -hmm. and what's primary, we're turning into secondary. Mm -hmm. And that's why I feel that churches have to be extremely careful when they dabble in politics, because we don't want to exclude people that have a different political point of view. And um, if you travel in different countries, you'll find that Christians actually do have different political points of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have to be sensitive. You know, they may not be exactly what you assume. I mean, Christians maybe hopefully are pro-life wherever they are, but in some places they'll be uh, more conservative in terms of economics. Mm-hmm. And in some places they'll be a, more, a little more left-wing in terms of economics. Mm -hmm. And that's where you just have to say, well, uh, I'm not going to destroy the church, divide the church, or cast my brother out of the kingdom because he advocates, he falls on one side of that, you know, and I fall on the other side of it. And and that's where you just have to be careful. I guess Um, it's similar to theological things, right? So we have primary points and then we have secondary points. And we're not going to divide over secondary issues. Could the same be said on a on a political front, in, in the sense that we have things that Christians should primarily agree upon, um, and uh, other things which we're happy to disagree upon. And but is there a point where we disagree on something, and actually we're not just having a disagreement politically; we're actually having a disagreement theologically and even maybe down the dividing line of orthodoxy and heresy? 
Well, that would be the case if a Christian uh, could not defend a pro-life position. Right. I feel that that is uh, un- unbiblical, profoundly unbiblical, and it upsets agree. me uh, if I find a Christian that, you know, uh, I want to question where's their head at, where's their <laughs> salvation at. Uh, I mean, given that only God can be the judge. However, you know, there's a nuance to other issues, for instance, on economics. Uh, I mean, I might feel that, you know, a uh, a, a free enterprise approach, free market approach, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I might go that direction. Someone else might be more left of center, but mm-hmm. we might both have the same goal in mind, which is how can we best raise living standards for the poor, let's say. Yep. So it's not as if, uh, and, and this is where, again, um, we have to be careful that people, for instance, on the left, don't sit in judgment on people on the right mm-hmm. because they say, well, you don't care for the poor. No, the people on the right simply say, well, a free market is the be- better way to channel resources to the poor. Uh, that's, a, that, that's the best way. Like Margaret Thatcher always used to introduce a non-contentious figure, but Margaret Thatcher always used to say socialism is great at spending other people's money. It's great at opening <laughs> wealth, but not at generating it. And so that would be a right-wing uh, free market sort of response. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, now, whether that's entire, then, you know, someone on the other end of the spectrum would, I only say that because I am to the right of, of center when it comes to economics. However, I have friends that would take issue with that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, uh, they would, for instance, point to the uh, colossal amounts of money that, certain individuals have uh, accumulated mm-hmm. and say, well, why should uh, Jeff Bezos or, uh, uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or people like this, uh, Bill Gates, accumulate all these profound amounts of money? I find it interesting that, you know, some of them are actually, uh, you know, they, they generally profess to be on the left of the spectrum, mm-hmm. except when it comes to their own money and their own businesses. <laughs> but anyway, that's another, I guess, human nature is imperfect. But, uh, you know, and, and someone on the left says, well, wait a minute, why don't we just tax half that money away? Uh, because it's not right that, you know, that such a small number of people have an, such an inordinate number of wealth. And I think they've got a point. I mean, I think you're always going to have inequality because some people simply have the capacity to generate wealth and that benefits fits everyone. Mm-hmm. And you can't take their wealth away because you take their incentive away and then you've got no more jobs. But I think that when it gets to an extreme, as it seems to have done in the last several decades, that maybe the left wingers have a point there and maybe we need to, you know, to um, some of these guys need to take a haircut <laughs> and the money needs to be redistributed uh, more equitably. But, you know, I mean, these are political opinions. They're secondary. They're not primary to the kingdom of God. And a healthy church should have people with a variety of political opinions uh, in it. And and, and that makes it, you know, it shouldn't be, uh, well, you know, that person is not going, doesn't feel comfortable in coming to our church because they all vote for one party. Mm -hmm. Then we've prioritized politics over the kingdom if that's the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I agree with you. I, I share the same leanings as you do, but also agree that on uh, 
these kinds of matters, you can have uh, 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 diverging opinions, and, and that's okay. And then there are other issues like the Imago Day of an unborn child that are they're just not up for debate. It's, it's not a negotiation. Um, and, and these things are biblically clear. Coming back to the term uh, nationalist, if I were to be honest, this is a uh, th- this term has only come into my psyche in the last probably year or two um, because it's been used in such a uh, disparaging way. From what I can tell, essentially to describe Christians in America who are more conservative, um, I don't think everybody uses it then in that way. But typically, when the term gets thrown out without any kind of definition. That seems to be what's Im- implied. Um, is that a term? You and I are obviously of different generations. Is that a term that you grew up with at all? And if so, like, what did it mean to your generation in comparison or contrast to what it seems to be now? Well, no. I mean, uh, I I hear it on the internet, and I think, what the heck is that? I've tried to sort of construe what's, and of course, I'm trying to figure out. Are there people who describe themselves as that, or is this a term of abuse? You know, uh, you're describing people that you disagree with as Christian nationalists, or is it people that say, I am a Christian nationalist, I'm proud about it. In either case, and I'm not quite sure what it means, but my, my inference is that it's Christians that have become very politically involved uh, for a start, and it, it seems to be in con- in American context, um, you know, people who are more conservative on the spectrum, mm-hmm. um, and therefore I look at it and I say, well, is this a new version of Christian Reconstructionism, where we take over the country, or a moral majority would be another moral majority? Uh, yeah, like Jerry Falwell. Remember Jerry Falwell and the moral yeah. majority, where he started you know, campaigning, getting involved in politics. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I I just think, again, it goes back to, are we salt and light? Are we serving or are we lording it over people? Mm-hmm. At the heart of Christianity is that the one who had all power gave it all up to serve us and lay his life down. And we are called to follow in his footsteps. So uh, if we are, then the primary role of Christians in any society or social context is to be servants. And if you're a servant, you're not running around screaming and yelling at people and trying to force them to do things. Mm-hmm. You're appealing to them. You're um, showing an example of what a Christian life would be or a servant would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that involves being prepared to reach out to people that you disagree with. I think maybe on a previous podcast, you can correct me, I told the story of the pastor in Czechoslovakia under communism. Uh, I don't recall. I'm sorry? I don't recall. Well, it's a very powerful story. Uh, And, you know, this comes to me from from a a very close friend uh, who was personally involved in this situation. And uh, in... Uh, in um, Bratislava, which is now Slovakia, but was part of Czechoslovakia under communism. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the number two uh, city in the, the nation. And uh, there was a gentleman there who, there who was the head of the Communist Party. 
And uh, a, a well-known Christian pastor called Frantischek was in the city. And, you know, they would uh, uh, harass him and his church. And there was one Sunday morning, he was on the way to church and secret police stopped him and said, where are you going? And he said, well, I'm, they were having communion that Sunday. So he said, oh, I'm, I'm going to uh, have a meal in honor of a friend of mine who died. <laughs> and uh, they let him go. Um, but the chief communist uh, guy uh, was building a, a headquarters for the Communist Party for that region. And Pastor Frandeshek went to the men of his congregation and he approached the, he went, asked for an appointment. And the man was kind of surprised when he walked in the door. And uh, the pastor said, look, you're, you're putting a building up. I've got some really excellent uh, tradesmen in my church. We're going to volunteer our labor on weekends to help you build this. Well, the Communist Party leader was just floored. Mm -hmm. uh, but he said yes. And a few months went past and he called the pastor in and he said, you know, your men have done more work and do a higher quality as volunteers on the weekend than the people I'm paying have done all week. And the bottom line in the story was that the gentleman contracted cancer and in due course he died. And the entire leadership of the nation, the Communist Party apparatus, the whole lot of them, secret police, you name it, uh, were there, were present at his funeral. And he made one stipulation that Pastor Frantischek would preach the gospel. Mm. And uh, that was what all that was leading up to, you see. But he served the enemy. That's very profound. Mm -hmm. That's far, far removed from, you know, what we see today. And I know Jesus said, you know, bless and do not, excuse me, bless and do not curse. Mm -hmm. Bless those who persecute you, you know. Well, it's all very well to read it in the Bible. But that's actually what that man did. And he touched uh, uh you know, the entire leadership, ungodly leadership of the nation, whether whether the Communist Party leader ever got saved or gave his life to Christ, I don't know. And I don't know whether whether Pastor Frandershek ever, ever knew that. But, you know, his actions had a very profound effect. Mm -hmm. And so I just think that sets a very high bar for us today. Mm -hmm. And it's not that I'm saying all of us would have to do something like that. You know, certainly not that we would volunteer to go and build an abortion clinic. That's not that's not what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. But I I just think that that was a prophetic action, and we need to check some of our attitudes, and we need to be sure that you know when you get it, see the political process, there's a lot of name calling, mudslinging, all the rest of it. Like Christians shouldn't be involved in that. You know, they should conduct themselves in a dignified manner, mm -hmm. and always be aware that their political opponent opponent is someone for whom Christ died. Mm -hmm. So yeah. anyway, that's about all my thoughts I can generate, I think, on that topic. I'm sure I can probably pull some more out of you. Let me try. So <laughs> um, I love that. And I think it's possible to, to live that way and at the same time um, to exercise uh, your Christianity as the driving mechanism or force behind which the way you think uh, and the way that you um, engage in the political sphere. In the example of that pastor uh, in 
in um, communist Russia, he, he, he's not being yeah, given the option. Czechoslovakia, sorry. He's not being given the the option. No, no one's asking him, hey, who do you think should be in power? What do you think the policies should be? Mm-hmm. And so within that context, he is exercising his Christian witness in the way that he should, in the way that is winsome and beautiful and invites people into the wonder of the gospel. That's the way that we should engage with people in whatever context we are in. Um, and if we have the option uh, or the opportunity to engage people uh, in a manner of you know, policy, then we should also do that as well, so long as we have good reasons for why we believe what we do. Would you say that that's fair? Yep. Mm-hmm. Here's a, here's a, um, this is, that seems to be the clearest definition that I can get of what it means to be nationalistic. Um, here's a definition for us. It's a principled standpoint that regards the world as governed best when nations are able to chart their own independent course cultivating their own traditions and pursuing their own interests without interference from other nations. This is opposed to imperialism, which seeks to bring peace and prosperity to the world by uniting mankind as much as possible under a single political regime. So nationalism is to be understood as over and against imperialism where the world. I disagree with that right there. Okay. So talk to us about that false dichotomy that's ridiculous um imperialism is uh, as you know you stated it it's the idea that one country has an empire and extends influence over others Mm -hmm. nationalism that imperialism is an extreme form of nationalism it's not the opposite of nationalism Mm -hmm. it's a form of nationalism the opposite of either nationalism or imperialism is what you, I suppose, could call internationalism, which is the idea that we live in a global community of peoples and we should try to reduce the divisions between us rather than accentuating them. And I think I'm on biblical grounds there because uh, at the Tower of Babel, that was a curse when God Mm -hmm. confused the languages and created the nations of the world. And uh, the curse is reversed at Pentecost when um, the tongues of all the different nations are miraculously understood, which is a prophetic sign that God is creating one new people. So, you know, the body of Christ breaks the curse of tribalism that had been there since Genesis. So as Christians, we're one uh, global uh, people. Mm -hmm. And that means that nationalism, extreme nationalism is never an option for a Christian because that would mean that uh, I would be promoting the interests of my own country ahead of your country, um, regardless of whether you and I were Christians, Mm -hmm. whereas I should be promoting the interests of my brothers and sisters around the world, regardless of what country they live in. And and I had a, a apostolic friend in India, John Babu, was the most remarkable man, mm-hmm. um, and had been a man of great influence in the country under 
Prime Minister Indira Gandhi. Um, but in conversation, he said to me, David, it's, it's not a question of, you know, the kingdoms of the East or the kingdoms of the West. There's a kingdom, there's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, which is why, you know, uh, I could go to India and find more in common with an Indian believer than I do with a per person that lives down the road from me that looks and talks like me and holds the same citizenship but isn't a Christian. So <laughs> I, I really am uncomfortable with nationalism. Uh, I mean, patriotism or being a good citizen, uh, you know, um, being prepared to, if I, if I believe that there are good values in our country, I'm prepared to go to war if I have to be, if I have mm. to, uh, that, that's, that's one thing. Uh, although, you know, our war should be defensive and not aggressive. Um, uh, but where my nationalism idolizes my nation, then that's wrong. That's just downright wrong. And I don't really care what country you live in. Uh, it's, it's wrong. And we see a terrible example of it in Russia today. Mm -hmm. Not, not that I'm demonizing the Russian people, but the dictator there mm -hmm. is an extreme example of nationalism. Well, I don't think any of us want to go there. Yes. Yeah, I, I think you proved my point even further is, is that we have a problem of definition. And I wonder if, um, I wonder if Christians should bother to use the word at all because everything that you just described is exactly the polar opposite of what this one author or thinkers is trying to put forward. Um, and he would say that they are over and against one another, nationalism and imperialism, uh, and would share the, uh, I think a, a lot of what you just said in common with you. Um, but I, to me, it just seems like one of those words where nobody knows exactly what anybody means when we use the word. Um, and so I wonder if it's helpful to denigrate people when they use it um, on one side. And I wonder if it's helpful to use it at all on the other side for the people who are interested in it. Well, I don't you uh, Yeah. Best thing is not to use it, but if the topic comes up, you've got to say, well, what exactly do you mean by that? Because I don't understand that from a biblical perspective. That's not a biblical concept, you know, and, and then you kind of stop people and they might get a little offended if they're a Christian. Um, but then it forces them to think, what, what is this that you're advocating? Uh, you know, and why would you think Christians That's should advocate? So the nation is a biblical concept in, in one respect, I suppose. Right. So like when you, when when God is setting up Israel, He's setting them up as a nation, as a a people group who are to operate according to a particular set of values, and they are con to conduct their relationship with the surrounding nations in a very prescribed kind of way that God gives to them. Uh, one of those ways being that they are not to um, uh, uh, force themselves upon those uh, surrounding nations. Um, in, in terms of um, uh, making them to believe what they believe. Now, if somebody comes from one of those nations into the nation of Israel, uh, then they are to embrace and, and treat as family. So there's the, like, that's, that's a nation there in the new Testament. You have the recognition of 
all different kinds of people, groups, cultures that are right, going to stand see, before the throne of God. But you have to be careful because right from the days of Abraham, God said, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Right. So God's intention was never limited to creating a nation. Israel was only an instrument to preserve the covenant line of the Messiah. Uh, and, and when he came, it was to bless all nations mm-hmm. and to yeah. reverse the curse. Yes, of I agree. Nationalism, if you want to call it that, which <laughs> I would with the, the Tower of Babel. Yeah. You know, I, I agree with that. And, and you, and you proved my point. So, um, through, the nation of Israel comes blessing to all the nations. As a right. result of that blessing, it's you you don't have on this side of eternity, the, the goal should not be to have one giant nation. That would be I guess that would be kind of the the logical conclusion of the post millennial. Yeah, in a view, way right? it's almost like <clears throat> recreating Israel. excuse me, which is what some of those people actually uh, try to do when they reinstitute Old Testament law. Uh, And of course, the dispensationalist equivalent of that is the millennium Mm -hmm. with uh, Jesus ruling over a a political nation, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. from Jerusalem. And these are unbiblical concepts. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's where we have to be really careful in... uh, in not, we have to be really careful not to idolize the nation in which we live. You can you can be concerned for a nation, be committed in a limited sense, love a nation, uh, be patriotic, but you can't idolize it. It has to be secondary to the kingdom of God. Here's a question for you, and I guess this is really kind of getting down to the the brass tacks of it. Is a society that is intentionally godless doomed? Can you yes, build a yes. healthy society apart from a shared belief that God is the basis of that society? Well, the kingdom of darkness always has the seeds of its own destruction within it uh, because Satan is a destroyer. And destruction is part of his identity. Mm-hmm. And so his kingdom actually is a self-destructing kingdom. So where you see uh, very wicked rule anywhere in the face of the earth, it has the seeds of its own destruction within it. It won't last. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so uh, what we see in, I mean, even... In communism, which which when I grew up seemed to be a force that you know uh, would would certainly outlive me, right? And probably outlive my ch- children and grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Um, it's gone, you know. The the communist structure, so certainly the the Soviet structure and all of the countries that were ruled and so on, it it just dissipated, mm-hmm. and uh, you all see the same thing in China. It doesn't mean China will become a democracy. China's got thousands of years of history and has different ways of doing things. Mm-hmm. But the um, the present regime, as it stands, has the seeds of its own destruction within it. And totalitarianism is always like that because it concentrates power more and more and more in one person. And I mean, Hitler was the same. And then that one person 
loses the benefit of all the wisdom and counsel, you know, on balance that come from other people and uh, the whole thing blows up. So you don't have to be a prophet to, to figure that out. It's only a matter of time before the Chinese regime will blow itself up the same way the Soviet regime did. Um, so any, but I mean, one of the things about, you know, this sort of Anglo-Saxon heritage, if I could put it that way, mm -hmm. uh, which has a strong Christian component in it and uh, did not originate in the United States, originated in Great Britain. Britain. Mm -hmm. uh, the, um, uh, and, and if you go to the British Library in London, you can see, for instance, uh, the Magna Carta. You can also see Codex Sinaiticus, which is the oldest ex uh, surviving copy of the Bible in Greek. Um, and in the next room, you can see the Magna Carta. And in the Magna Carta, that was the first provision for, you know, uh, the right of, uh, you know, private property and the right of um, to be tried by mm -hmm. uh, 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 our peers, not mm -hmm. by some, uh, not by a king or whatever. Mm -hmm. And all of those things were, you know, really biblical concepts of personal um, mm -hmm. dignity mm -hmm. and value were put in place eight, nine hundred years ago and have proven that, you know, have been built into the foundation of British society and governance uh, and that pa passed on into the nations of the Commonwealth and to the United States. Right. Um, and that's why these societies have been enduring. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not not say they're perfect, but they're enduring mm -hmm. because if you have biblical values placed uh you know, even though there's always a mixture, if you have some strong biblical values placed at the foundation of a society, affirming the worth and value of each person, mm -hmm. then then they carry something of God within them rather than the kingdom of darkness, and they won't self-destruct. Right. And so the author that I quoted earlier is a man named Yoram Hazoni, uh, and he, you just stated exactly his argument. Um, and funnily enough, you used the same way into it, starting with Britain and um, the the Constitution and, and the influence that had upon the United States. So, so again, it's just interesting. Like he would say that that is nationalism, um, and so I think we we just have a problem of, of definition. And so, going back to my question though, can a society, can a godless society, an, an intentionally godless society, which communism is, you know, it's 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 based upon the ideology of Marxism. Marx called, you know, religion the opiate for the people. So it's it's intentionally godless. Uh, it's it's rationalistic, purely rationalistic. It, it tries to think its way into optimum society. Um, can that society actually flourish? No, we don't think it can, and therefore. Is it not loving your neighbor to say, hey, we are actually going to be at our best when we have some kind of foundation of God and scripture uh, at, at play in our society? Oh, for sure. That, no one's that people would say that that is Christian nationalism. <laughs> and, well, and, I would, and I would say that's sanity. Exactly. You know what yeah. I'm saying? And, and so well, – well, it's Wilberforce, isn't it? If you, if you, who, who was it that abolished slavery? It was all Christians. Mm -hmm. 
And, and it was a, they had a, you know, a, a big battle to do it, but they were motivated because they, simply because they were Christians. That's why slavery was abolished. And, um, it was a big battle, mm-hmm. you know, but, uh, the, um, possibility arose for that debate to be held because of the democratic foundations in Great Britain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the people who were powerful and wealthy actually were not able to, um, hold on to their power or to step on the voice of others because mm-hmm. the, you know, Wilberforce was appealing to biblical values of the worth and value of each person. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that's, that's he's that, a great example of a Christian in politics. Right. And that's the great encouragement, I think, to people is to say, hey, there's a lot of things that we hold dear in in our democratic societies today. Things like individual liberty, things like personal property, uh, uh, things like individual rights. And we think, and I'm using we here really generally, like we as as modern day liberal societies, we think that those principles are arrived at rationally, that those are those are self evident truths, if you will, that any society will arrive at if they just use their uh, their rational faculties to think through them. And I guess what we're saying is, hold on a second, uh, maybe not, um, because actually all societies in human history haven't arrived at those principles. And going back to what you were saying in Britain, things like uh, individual liberty and personal property, those were uh, inherently connected to biblical belief because those do derive from biblical belief. If we totally throw away a foundation of God and scripture in our society, we cannot guarantee that however many generations from now, those same values will be supposedly still self-evident. Right. Because, uh, the worldview, the atheistic, uh, secularistic, whatever you want to call it, worldview, uh, does not support those values. I mean, it may, it, it, people may advocate them, but they have no rational or logical coherent basis for advocating them that's rooted within their own worldview. It's Mm -hmm. rooted within our worldview, which they reject, but they're borrowing our values to sustain uh, some of their worldview, Mm -hmm. but it's coherent within our worldview because it's, it, it makes sense throughout. I mean, that what's at the foundation of our worldview, we're walking out but they have a foundation of their worldview that gives no value mm-hmm. to any of those things. We're just random collections of atoms, for instance, you know. Correct. And uh, and then all of a sudden, you impose on that some kind of concept of human rights or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, where did that come from? Exactly. You know, it's irrational. There's no connection with it, and so eventually it collapses. And that's what this happened in postmodernism. Um, it always collapses into might versus right. Mm-hmm. That's always what happens when you lose the biblical value of the importance of everlasting, eternal, you know, value of the individual person and their dignity before God as a, as a creation of God, then inevitably it becomes a power struggle between people who's going to get more rights than somebody else. 
And the people that do get more rights are the people that have the more have the power. It always comes down to that. Might mm-hmm. is right, mm-hmm. and uh, you know it's it, it. You can see it with postmodernism because the idea is that the people who are oppressed because of their oppression have to be given more power to overcome the oppression. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden there's an inversion of this mm-hmm. where a certain gr- a small group of people are able to dictate and everybody else has to bow down before them. Mm-hmm. And it isn't even logical. The people that actually need the help don't even get the help. Mm-hmm. You just get a clique of ideologues. It's mm-hmm. the same in communism. You know, it, th- it was, there was, a wealthy class of communist leaders. The communist leaders were not the ordinary poor people or, you know, with a quality of income. The people leading the, the communist party were rich and wealthy and mm-hmm. had country homes and, you know, who, who, who knows what else, because there's no, there wasn't a moral basis to what they were doing. It just was might versus right. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I wonder if in some kind of Christian application of the way a nation should run, there, uh, there's protection against, um, you know, what you see in in a, um, a genuine theocracy, say, in like an Islamic state, because the Christian worldview uh, honors all human life, um, and therefore protects the minority, you know, whether that be a religious minority or, or otherwise. Um, yeah, I don't know. And, and that's true. And it's why countries that have a Christian heritage, there's very little persecution mm. of religious minorities, mm-hmm. non-Christian religious minorities. Whereas in militant Hindu or Islamic states, there's very frequently, right. not always, but very frequently persecution. Mm-hmm. of religious minorities mm-hmm. uh and somebody ought to draw the line and think well why why is there a difference that way you know mm-hmm. um so yep I, I guess where i net out is i do believe that it is right to apply my christianity to politics i believe that it is beneficial to more than just Christians to apply Christianity to politics, because there are things that we all value that I think we take for granted uh, in the sense of how deeply connected they are to a biblical worldview. Would you say that you net out in that same place? Yeah, I think it's a responsibility of a Christian to participate at some level or another and try to look for ways to promote the interests of the wider community. Let's invert that. Is it irresponsible to not participate? I I think it is. I think if you're a Christian uh, citizen uh, and you can't be bothered to vote or participate, that's irresponsible. Mm. Uh, other people have, you know, like my dad spent seven years fighting Hitler uh, so that we would have that freedom today. So wow. get a your dad yourself. was was in World War II from 1939 to 1946. Wow! And uh, uh, by the grace of God, he survived it, but many didn't. Wow! My grandfather was in, I think, 
either the Somme or Passchendaele in World War One. He got gassed and and affected his health. He was sent home and couldn't couldn't go back uh, because of his health. So there are people who have died, and uh, you know, um, imagine you know how could we you know they fought for the freedom that we have. How could we just sit back and take it for granted? I think it's disgraceful. When there's a cynicism is a terrible, terrible thing. You know, churches and Christians and our our soul can put up with a bunch of stuff, but cynicism is a corrosion Mm. that kills. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you feel, you know, anyone listening to this, if you feel you're becoming cynical toward anything, then take that to the Lord because that is a viper. It's a poison. It'll kill you. Mm Mm-hmm. So Christians have a responsibility, which I didn't always take seriously, um, to be honest with you. Uh, and um, I don't feel I, – I can genuinely say that I don't feel a loyalty to a political party. And I, uh, I, would, I would fully expect that at some point, you know, most political parties are going to – go in a direction that is incompatible with um uh with Christianity if those political parties don't have the bible as one of their you know core values um so i think it's it's the best place to be as a christian to go i'm not loyal to a political party um but i am looking at the issues and uh and applying my christianity to them well, we should be thankful for Christians that are involved in politics. Is a thankful, thankless, uh, you know, profession. Really, you, mm-hmm. you don't get a lot of thanks. And and uh, but I mean, you know, thank God for Christian men and women that are involved in the political process. Uh, our pastor's wife just got elected to our city council here, and mm-hmm. I'm really glad that she did because. She'll be a great voice mm-hmm. on even if it's just the city council, mm-hmm. you know, um, and and better have someone like her on it than someone who is a very godless person. Mm-hmm. So but, you know, that's going to be a cost to her and her family. And she'll probably get some flack from people that disagree with the way she votes on things. But um, it's service on her part. She's not doing it. I know. I know her. She's not doing it to get a big image or to be popular, to be powerful. She's doing it because she believes it's serving the community. And um, that's wonderful. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, okay. Well, maybe we can pick that up at another point, but I think we've said enough about it for the time being. We've been reading this book uh, called The Incarnation of God. Um, and, oh, you have to excuse me. I forget the name of the author, but I can look really quick. Uh, John C. Clark, I think is the primary author of the book and also a gentleman named Marcus Peter Johnson. I want to, uh, bring this book into the conversation because it's Christmas season. Um, and I thought having a discussion around the incarnation, uh, would not only be interesting, but also helpful for people. Um, certainly helpful for uh, pastors and preachers who are maybe have their head in this subject right now. Um, So we're going to take this chapter by chapter. There are eight chapters in the book, so we'll be talking about it for the next eight weeks, um, which will be, you know, around about 
uh, just after Christmas time. Um, let's dive into uh, a discussion on chapter one, David. Uh, I've pulled a few quotes, but wanted to th- hand it over to you for um, any initial thoughts that you have. You're obviously the much more educated uh, and smarter of the two of us. So your opinions. I'm not sure. I'm, well, I may be more educated. Whether I'm smarter or not is up for debate. You're definitely smarter. <laughs> uh, well, maybe. I don't know. Um, it's a, it's a, yeah, I'll, I'll, I mean, uh, uh, why don't we just start with the, a quote or two? Okay, great. Um, I can begin. So, uh, let's, this is kind of what I would say the premise of the book is pulling a quote here, the supreme mystery and indeed scandal at the center of Christian confession and no less at the center of all reality is the incarnation of God in and as the man, Jesus Christ. Condensing that a little bit, the supreme mystery at the center of the Christian confession is the incarnation of God in and as the man, Jesus Christ. So basically they're saying that all of Christianity and indeed all of reality finds its meaning in the incarnation. Agree? I'm sorry. I was just going to say, do you agree? Yeah, I think it's, uh, and they go on and quote C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis, uh, in one of his books, I always remember being impacted by it. Uh, and I, I, I think he has it in his book, uh, Mere Christianity, um, is the idea that uh, why do we quibble at miracles if we accept the incarnation then any other miracle is just minor by comparison. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this incredible fact of God, uh, the creator, um, revealing himself as God the Father, sending his son into the world, um, that is what we believe as Christians. And uh, I think that um, there is something so profound about that uh, but what they what they then argue is that uh, because the Bible reveals that God the Father created the universe through his son, Colossians tells us that, and that this one who created the universe has now appeared in the flesh, mm-hmm. that this is the defining moment in the cosmos mm-hmm. where the creator appears in the flesh and... Um, he is the foundation of all reality. Mm -hmm. And so all reality flows from him. Mm -hmm. And then they make the point that the Christian faith simply accepts the incarnation, accepts that God, the father, uh, revealed himself, made himself manifest in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe. And that, all of our understanding of the universe, the cosmos of life, of reality, however you want to define it, flows from that one fact of God's self-manifestation as his son, mm-hmm. the father's self-manifestation as his son, Jesus Christ, so that we don't sit back. And, and this is the curse of modern Western culture since the so-called enlightenment about 300 years ago is the the rise of independent human reason. Of course, the Greeks had that as well. Uh, 
but do do we uh, try to understand Christian faith or reality by our independent human reason? That's what our society does, our godless society does. Mm-hmm. Or do we do we as Christians? That's the Christian alternative. Understand reality in the person of Jesus Christ, and everything flows out from that. So therefore, we don't question that that. We don't take the Bible and say, oh, my goodness, you know, this this feeding of the 5,000, that couldn't possibly have happened. That's not rational. Or, you know, the healing of the leper, that's not rational. Or the raising of Jairus's daughter, that's not rational. Or mm-hmm. all these things are just myths. They're fairy tales that p- people made up. Well, that's because we're trying to, you know, we've exalted our human reason as being the, the, the um, instrument by which we interpret reality mm-hmm. whereas in the it whereas christian faith says no the fact that god has come and shown up on earth the creator has shown up on earth we define reality from who he says he is and we accept what he's done and logically even if you accept that god could manifest himself on earth in the person of his son then really whether he feeds 5,000, heals a few lepers, raises the dead, is chicken feed compared to the incarnation. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely nothing compared to the incarnation. Yeah, I love that he uh, defines the difference between orthodoxy and heresy as you know something like the willingness to embrace mystery or on the heretical side of things to have you know a a, a commitment to solving all biblical mysteries. So contrary to enlightenment rationalism, you know, which wants to have a reasonable explanation for uh, the way things are all the time. um, When you bring that into a theological place, you get to heresy when you feel like you need to solve uh, some of the mysteries like the incarnation as you know, the book is talking about. So how can Jesus be fully God and fully man? And all of the, uh, or a lot of the early heresies uh, in the first few centuries of the church were around that issue. Um, and I love the whole idea of at, at, at bottom, a heresy is trying to solve what should be preserved as a mystery and orthodoxy values the mystery. And so he brings up, you know, for example, the heresy of, of modalism, um, or the heresy of, of Arianism. And these guys are trying to solve this mystery of of what it means for God to truly be incarnate in his son, Jesus Christ. Um, and I don't know, that really spoke like I could feel my heart being electrified by that. Uh, yeah. I, I think, I think it was a true way of putting it. Mm-hmm. And, but I, the, the, the way I would look at it is um, going back into the early church leaders, the first several centuries where all these problems were, um, addressed uh and resolved to uh uh to the extent they can be um the battle was between the one group who accepted the biblical witness mm-hmm. and the other group of church leaders who just could not resist the categories of greek philosophy and uh over at theos uh there's another um non-controversial group of people but over shout out over shout time. out to Dathan, our favorite Christian nationalist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, um, 
But over at Theos, uh, I got into a debate or I was gotten into a debate um, on, uh, uh, you know, the historical influences of Greek philosophy on the church. And, um, you know, the great church fathers like Athanasius and Augustine uh, took a very strong stand against the influence of Greek philosophy, mm-hmm. but some of these others that you, that that um, you know that you mentioned, like Arius, for instance, when Ari- Arianism is is still exists very much so today. It's it, we we just call it Jehovah's Witnesses today. Mm-hmm. Modalism still exists today. It's um, United Pentecostalism. Uh, and there's quite a few of them around, uh, mm-hmm. Pentecostals who are modalists mm-hmm. that, uh, don't believe in the Trinity. Uh, although if you read their statement of faith, it's very slippery. And I did this the other day, actually, uh, on a website. Uh, they believe that God manifests himself in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but it's only one God. They're Unitarian. They're not Trinitarian. Mm-hmm. So all these things are still around. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, the the uh, you know the writers of I mean the 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 great councils of Nicaea and uh, Chalcedon in particular and the uh, two councils of Nicaea and Chalcedon and uh, there was one at Constantinople as well uh, they uh, worked through uh, f- working outward from the statements of Jesus himself in the Scripture. They came to an understanding, as good an understanding as we can have, of the Trinity and of the divine and human natures of Christ. And um, it's not that it's irrational. It's that it is that our minds are not rational enough to comprehend. What would you say? Super rational? Super rational. Super rational. You could say... uh, the mystery is is not a mystery to God. It's a mystery to us because of our fallen, and of course, our fallen human rationality is the direct result of our reaching out to take the tree of the, you know, the knowledge of good and evil, where we defined good and evil and 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 developed our rationality independent of God, and now we can understand uh, who God is. So we have to accept. Um, what God says in his word and what Jesus says about himself. Mm-hmm. And we have to accept it rather than trying to rationalize it so that we rationalize away the parts that we don't like. And so, you know, uh, the argument at Theos I got into was, uh, there's a strain of, uh, Catholic theology, uh, per- personified in Thomas Aquinas, mm-hmm. which, you know, one part of it was quite good and the other part of it was quite bad. Mm-hmm. It, it, he relied on Aristotle. Mm-hmm. And when the reformers came along, Luther and Calvin, they said, no, you know, this is creating all sorts of problems. We need to get back to the faith of Augustine and Athanasius and the early church fathers and get rid of the influence of this, um, you know, uh, ungodly Greek philosophy i've got nothing against greeks i love greeks i've been to athens and i teach at the bible college there every so often but the greek pagan greek philosophy um you know which is still around we don't realize it is but it is um you know when that influences the church uh it it does no good to the christian faith at all so i think um and here 
if I'll say one more thing, which I'm probably saying too much, but I'll say one more thing, which is that uh, Christians have um, a very poor understanding of early church history and of the early church fathers, of the early theologians and so on. And, you know, you don't have to have a degree in theology to um, to grasp the, the arguments. It's something that, you know, probably we should teach at, at some point or try to teach some of our people uh, the history of how we came to believe what we do believe about the Trinity or about the two natures of Christ, the person of Christ, mm-hmm. um, because these were battles that were fought. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and what we have in, for instance, the Nicene Creed, which uh, was actually recited at a charismatic church I was speaking at the other week in Indianapolis, uh, and good for them for reciting it. You know, it, it roots us in eight, about 1700 years of history. Uh, and, and um, it reminds us that there are fads, you know, uh, there are a lot of fads, theological fads around. And we need to be people who feed ourselves on the historical truths that the church has believed for 2000 years and not some of the fads that have been around, you know, for five years, 10 years, or even a hundred years. That reminds me, I have a toxic theology for us to finish on that ties into uh, what we're talking about now, especially related to those, uh, those creeds. Um, So here's a a statement from the, the book, which I think is awesome. Knowledge of God in Christ is first experiential and then doctrinal because it is revelatory and relational knowledge rather than neutral and detached knowledge. It goes on to say that the order of the relationship between experience and doctrine is anything but arbitrary in that it constitutes an order of knowledge that has always marked authentic Christian understanding and confession. In fact, when this order of knowledge has been inverted so that theory gains the pride of place over experience, the apostolic confession of Christ has been terribly distorted and sometimes altogether denatured. I love that. And then also there's something in me that goes, you know, well, the way that I know Christ is through doctrine. The way that I know Christ is through scripture. But also I have a relationship with him by the spirit. I am in Christ. I have union with Christ by the Holy Spirit and that relationship uh, has some kind of uh, governing role. Help me reconcile this tension that I feel in regards to what they're saying there. Yeah, well, I mean, the scripture itself teaches, resolves the tension between, let's say, scripture and experience. Mm-hmm. The scripture itself teaches that our knowledge of God is, is experiential. Mm-hmm. Um, the Hebrew verb, verb yada, uh, to know is used also of sexual intercourse, for instance. Mm-hmm. So it's to know God is an, ex- it involves ex- living experience. The, the Greek word pestuo for, uh, to believe in refers to a personal encounter. It's putting your trust in someone. It, it 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 involves believing certain things about Jesus, but it primarily is a personal encounter where you you put your trust in Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so, at the heart of of the Mosaic Covenant was God revealing Himself to Moses, or uh, uh, well, to Moses. And I mean, He already had to Abraham, but let's just focus on the 
on on the giving of the Torah to begin mm-hmm. right here. Um, God reveals Himself as the I Am, and and He has a personal encounter where He draws Moses experientially into encounter with Him. Now Moses doesn't have all the Torah at that point. He doesn't have all his knowledge about God. He doesn't have all the doctrine. He has an encounter with God, and out of that encounter, God then structures the encounter through Scripture. So that's what Christianity is all about. You and I have had an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have and we have repeated encounters through the Holy Spirit with the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, how we structure and understand our encounters is through Scripture. So uh, and what the authors of this book are saying is that when theology becomes uh, like um, just another scientific pursuit, where it becomes divorced from personal living encounter and relationship mm-hmm. with the Lord Jesus Christ, it's lethal. And it's true. It's mm-hmm. ab- Theology is absolutely lethal when it is conducted outside of a living encounter with Christ. And so those of us who are, quote unquote, charismatic or have that dimension or believe in, you know, the supernatural revelation manifestations of the Holy Spirit, um, you know, we're that that's not a bad thing. Uh, it's a good thing mm-hmm. uh, in terms of our encounter with Christ. It's just that we need to remember that those encounters have to be structured scripturally. We, and, and, and so on the one hand in church, you can have someone who is very non-charismatic, um, who maybe is a little dry in their personal walk with the Lord. I'm not saying that all non-charismatics are, please don't hear me, but you could have someone in that position that was dry in their walk with the Lord, but was full of doctrine. That's not a good place to be. Mm -hmm. On the other hand of the spectrum, you could have someone who's very charismatic and has all sorts of experiences, but they've lost track of the doctrine. That's equally not a good place to be. Mm -hmm. The good place to be is people who have a living personal encounter with Christ, regardless of whether you're charismatic or not, but you, you, you have a living personal encounter within the con and you understand that encounter within the context of the word of God. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what these guys are trying to say. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that, you know, all of Christianity boils down to men and women meeting Jesus Christ personally. Mm-hmm. That's how it started. That's how God, revealed himself to Abraham, you know, to Isaac, to, to Jacob, to Joseph, to Moses, um, to David, uh, and how Jesus revealed himself to, you know, Peter and James and John and the rest of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I guess, according to the incarnation, God being in Christ, the only way that we can know God actually is to be in Christ, because only when you are in Christ, are you actually united with God in any kind of relational sense. Um, and so it makes perfect sense to say that we first know God experientially. We, we, when we are saved, we are brought to share in, in, in Christ. I mean, that's the term that Paul uses. We are in Christ. And so that's where our knowledge of God comes from. So all New Testament revelation uh, as recorded by Paul and Peter and John and Matthew, uh, that flows from their own experiential knowledge uh, of God personally, and that is what inspired their their writing of the doctrine, um, writing of the scripture. 
Um, and so the same for us, we have that same relationship with God in Christ and we have scripture, we have doctrine to help, uh, put words to what we experience and to protect us from our own faulty, uh, fallen state of our, of our rationale to not take us down pathways that are, uh, unbiblical or, uh, heretical. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So he says this, and we're going to make this the last point of discussion around this chapter. Any humanity God the Son has not assumed is humanity God the Son cannot save. For only that assumed humanity can be brought into a true, true, full, perfect, and personal relationship with God in the person of Christ. He's going to say a lot more about this in chapter 4, um, but he peppers it in here in chapter 1. So God the Son had to assume every element of our humanity, body, mind, in order to save that part of our humanity. So, for instance, if Christ was just human body, but not actually a human mind, then uh, that would have limitation upon his his salvific efficacy. If he was yeah, just yeah. human mind, but not human body, that would be the same. Mm-hmm. So, talk about that, because... It, it seems like that should be obvious, um, and I can see how it would absolutely be heretical to say that Christ assumed a human body but not a mind and vice versa. But talk about why that's important, and are there any like things to be aware of in that discussion? Well, the, uh, I mean, when we, Jesus came into this world, he came and took all of fallen humanity upon himself and he walked in that he he could only redeem it because he you know was tested in every respect as were we yet without sin is the way mm-hmm. hebrews puts it mm-hmm. and what the authors are responding to it are some of the ancient heresies that you know people couldn't get their head around this and they said well you know jesus maybe had a divine soul and mm-hmm. Uh, that was kind of separated somehow from his human nature. Uh, that's what we call Nestorianism. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, um, well, uh, Jesus was fully God and fully man, but somehow God kind of melded all of that into something different. Like a third person. Third person, third nature, that some, some some different substance, which is what we call monophysitism, um, and all these th- all these ideas were uh, rationalistic ways of trying to solve um, avoid the scandal of the fact that Jesus <laughs> was a, a man just like us, and mm-hmm. and it, it's hard for us to get our head around that. That's that's why people kind of said, oh, it can't be like that. It's hard for us to get around our head around the fact that Jesus was a man just like us, and yet somehow he lived without sin. But when we understand that this is God, the Son, who created the entire universe by the word of his power, 
it shouldn't be difficult for us to, uh, even though we can't grasp the depth of the interaction between fully God and fully man at the same time, uh, we can accept it. This is God. This is the amazing nature of God as he reveals himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. It's just an incredible thing. And something, you know, it's like, it whether it's that or whether it's the Trinity, some of these things we just accept. We have to accept. Um, it's not because we suspend our rationality and believe stupid things. It's that our minds aren't big enough to comprehend what's being put in front of us. And so we accept it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and And guess what? It works. Christianity actually works. People for 2,000 years who have followed Jesus have um, found that living according to the word of God brings all sorts of benefits to their life. It it, it works. There is joy. There is presence Mm -hmm. of God even in the midst of pain and suffering. And there are countless testimonies to the supernatural reality and power of God in the lives of saints for 2000 years and, and and none of us will follow Jesus would ever want to trade it for anything better and That's orthodox our- orthodox christianity would say that that is expressly because of the incarnation god does not give us those things like peace like joy or salvation or transformation of life apart from christ as though they were an external package that he hands to us right God instead gives us himself and in him are all of those benefits. Every spiritual blessing is in the heavenly places in Mm -hmm. Christ Jesus. Um, And so essentially what these guys are saying here in this final quote that we're drawing upon is that any redemptive work that happens for us humans, be it mind or body happens because Christ took upon that nature, that human nature thoroughly and reunited it to God so that it could be redeemed for us and we could yep. share in that union. They're going to yep. say a, a whole bunch more about that notion. I know that this should be so basic and obvious, but I find that absolutely electrifying. Like that is startlingly beautiful and I love it. Mm. It's, it's, it's wonderful. Um, okay. Let's, let's take two minutes. Cause we got to hop off this. We got to close this episode. Um, and let's just look really briefly at a, uh, a toxic theology that ties into what we're talking about. This is from an account called progressive Christianity, which as I like to say is no Christianity at all. Consider this remarkable fact in the sermon on the Mount. There is not a single word about what to believe only words about what to do and how to be. By the time the Nicene Creed is written only three centuries later, there is not a single word in it about what to do and how to be, only words about what to believe. Their point being that belief is at least less important and maybe even unimportant as it regards uh, what really matters. What matters is what you do, not what you believe. I think that that is uh, a silly thing to assert because the only reason that you would listen to anything that Jesus says to do in the Sermon on the Mount is because you first believe that he is somebody worth listening to. 
Well, or in, the, uh, in the Christian yeah. context, because you believe that he is Lord. You know, and, and it's also a kind of ridiculous statement because, uh, first of all, the Sermon on the Mount begins in Matthew by saying he opened his mouth and taught them. Oh, he taught them. Okay, so that's, uh, it taught them what to believe. Um, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's a fact, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, that assumes the existence of the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is teaching doctrine right there. Uh, <laughs> You know, uh, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Well, he gets that out of Isaiah. Well, you know, how about the messianic promises of, of God establishing his kingdom in right. the consummation of all things? And how about, uh, do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets? Yeah. It's do not believe so, I came to, rather, to think or believe that I came to fulfill them. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, if, if, if you went to the creeds, which is what we believe, uh, they are, uh, uh, if we believe in God, the father and in his son and his saving work, then those are doctrinal truths, which cause us to live in a certain way. Uh, and, uh, so I, I just can't believe how dumb people are that write this kind of stuff. I mean, really, mm -hmm. like it really doesn't even make any logical sense mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. I think it's like a soundbite that someone who really doesn't know anything is going to say, oh, that sounds great. Mm -hmm. And then they, go, their head. they don't even know what was said. Mm -hmm. Well, it's typically it's, it's, uh, it's very politically charged. Because believe it or not, most of the time, progressive Christianity is much more informed by their politics than orthodox or conservative Christianity is. Usually on the conservative end, you have a politics that's informed by Christianity, even if imperfectly. But uh, the express interest of the progressive Christian is oftentimes that it, their belief is informed by uh, their their political uh, commitments. Um and so, but I guess that, you know, th for this particular issue right here, this statement, it, it kind of brings us full circle to the fact that what you do is ultimately grounded in what you believe. And so, you know, the point that we were making earlier is things like individual rights or liberty, those are, uh, those are values that grow out of a belief in what the Bible says in regards to. Right. Uh, and, the and, and, and the other point is that it betrays something. It betrays a certain view of Jesus. Uh, those kind of that kind of statement, the person that made it actually doesn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. Mm -hmm. He or she believes that Jesus was a great moral teacher, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you know that Jesus went around telling people to do this, do that, to do mm -hmm. good, and so on. Um, and they they uh, you know uh, disparage a doctrine because doc a doctrinal approach to Jesus says. Jesus, you are the son of God. Uh, and that's where I start. Uh, and, and so, you know, social gospel, uh, as we used to call it, um, generally tended to degenerate into Jesus was a moralist. He was kind of a, you know, uh, you know, he had certain moral slash political slash social ideals. But really, 
he was just another, mm-hmm. uh, he was just another, you know, he was an, an early, an early forerunner of, you know, Martin Luther King, let's say. And I'm not, that's not saying anything about bad about Martin Luther King at all. It's just that Jesus is on a little higher level. And Dr. Mm-hmm. King would have agreed with that mm-hmm. than, than Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. But Jesus was not a Martin Luther King. Jesus was the son of God himself. And Christian, the power of Christian faith and all, all of the good works that have been done by Christians through the centuries have, have not been done because people believe that Jesus was a moral teacher. Mm-hmm. They've been done because People had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ that changed their lives, that caused them to lay down their life. The foundation of most hospitals in the Western world was done by Christians. Most educational institutions was done by Christians. Those were good works that were done by people that did not believe Jesus was just a moral teacher because that kind of teaching wouldn't have carried them to do anything. Mm -hmm. You know, it was the, the, all those good works were done by, because people believed something. So Mm -hmm. you, you, this is the this is the fallacy and the stupidity of people who say, "Oh, well, it's not about what you believe; it's about what you go out and do." Mm-hmm. Well, no, it isn't. You're, if you don't have a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, then none of these things will make any sense. Mm-hmm. Those people listening to the Sermon on the Mount were were you know those that 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 went on to follow Jesus were people that believed he was the son of God, not just people that believed he was giving out moral platitudes about political justice or whatever. Exactly. And Matthew is writing to a community of Christians who are, you know, living in the first century Roman Empire, who are being persecuted for their faith, for what they believe, because what they believe determines how they engage with the society around them and what they're unwilling to compromise on. I've never had somebody who viewed, you know, Jesus in this way of being a moralist and go down that avenue and and leave our church. I've never never had them do it for the reason because they wanted to take the Bible more seriously. Um, it's it's only ever been because they want they didn't want to compromise on a popular cultural belief uh, and couldn't reconcile that with biblical teaching, and therefore made the choice to you know get less serious about what the Bible has to say. Um, and I that's obvious. Which then raises the legitimate question, did they know Jesus in the first place? Mm-hmm. And not, neither you nor I are in a place to judge, but God is the judge. But I do think there are people around that don't necessarily know Jesus at all and have not had that real encounter with him, but maybe they think they do. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when the testing comes, they fall away. Mm-hmm. It's been good talking to you, sir. Always an absolute pleasure. Um Thank you so much for all of that, that roundabout discussion and helping us to find a way into some sense of coherence. Great to be with you. Talk soon.